uh, my parents were being scapegoated, you know, for, um, you know, concerns that they brought the virus to Georgia. You know, hearing how horribly they were treated by people that they broke bread with for 20 years, um, that was really hard and inspired me to start writing. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, a podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Welcome to another episode of America Explained. I'm your host, Andy Gorthorpe, bringing you interviews and analysis to get behind the headlines and help you understand the big picture in American politics and foreign policy. I was really excited to record today's interview with Jeff Lee. Jeff's a writer and a thought leader who's become one of the most important voices in the Stop Asian Hate movement. This movement aims to draw attention to racism and violence being directed at Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in relation to COVID-19, but also other sources, and it aims to draw attention to the deeper roots of anti-Asian and anti-Pacific Islander racism in the United States. One of the things that makes Jeff such a powerful voice in this movement is that he has such extensive experience working at the top levels of policymaking at the state level, the national level, and indeed the international level as well. Jeff's worked for the State Department, he's worked in the US House of Representatives, he's worked for the United Nations. Jeff's also worked at the highest levels of California state government, where he was a deputy cabinet secretary under Governor Jerry Brown, and he oversaw homeland security, natural disaster response, and a whole host of other issues as well. This experience really allows Jeff, so Jeff speaks, he's he's such an honest guy, he's such an open guy, he speaks about his personal experiences, but he's also able to speak to the structural barriers that he's found face Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in American politics and policymaking and, and indeed in private industry as well. So in talking about this issue of rising anti-Asian, anti-Pacific Island racism and discrimination in the US, I just can't think of a better person, someone who brings a greater degree of experience and different perspectives to this topic. And that's why I was so excited to interview Jeff. So we cover a lot of ground in this interview, ranging from Jeff's experiences growing up in America as the son of Vietnamese immigrants, through to the impact of tensions with China on the Asian American community. I've included some links to some of Jeff's writing in the show notes, so please check that out, and I really hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. Okay, so Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Andy. So your parents came to the U.S. in 1981 after leaving Vietnam, and you've written that they they bounced around various refugee camps before they arrived, which can't have been too fun of an experience. But then also when when they arrived. So I know that a lot of Vietnamese refugees in this first wave uh, faced a lot of problems and, and prejudice, you know, especially kind of famously down in Texas, they got into the shrimping business and faced a lot of prejudice from from the KKK and, and from the locals. And, and so much of this was kind of tinged with sentiment, I think, that was left over from the war and kind of, you know, anti-Asian stereotypes. I just wondered about, well, what was your parents' approach to arriving in America and then trying to achieve a safe and prosperous life in, in this new country? And what kinds of problems were they facing? Yeah, I think what you highlighted was a, I mean, a pretty, I think, standard uh, or consistent experience that most Vietnamese, um, you know, arriving in the late 70s and 80s experience. Uh, the advantage they have is they arrived in Southern California. And obviously, when you're arriving in a major port of, of Vietnamese and creating the first real little Saigon, I think you have a strength in numbers advantage that I think, unfortunately, uh, you know, the Gulf Coast Vietnamese didn't have the same infrastructure you know, in place. And frankly, I think they were seen as disruptors in an economy. 
versus I think in Orange County where they were really creating opportunities, right? And small business. And I mean, I'll tell you, uh, ironically, you know, when I worked for the governor of California, he was also the governor of California when my parents arrived, right? They right yeah. up and he had expressed <laughs> concerns about integration and economic uh, challenges for absorbing Vietnamese into the country, into the state of California. So, you know, I would say initially the discrimination they faced or difficulties was first just about learning the system, learning the culture, learning how to navigate government assistance. There wasn't exactly a show me how back then, right? So I think that was a big issue. Even though they had a social network and community of people, they were able to cobble their money together to start a gardening company uh, in Southern California. So we mainly mowed lawns and trimmed hedges, you know, very American sort of worker bee role. And actually that turned out to be my first role at eight, you know, at eight years old was mowing lawns with my dad. Uh, my parents worked 18 hour days. And really, if I didn't work with them on the weekends, I only saw them. I only knew they were home based on when the revving of the truck started at 5 a.m. and when they got home at like 1130 or midnight. So, you know, their experience was, I think, a typical immigrant story of working their tail off, putting their head down, trying to just sort of survive. Uh, and then obviously doing that in the sort of ethos of what we call the American dream, which is really this, this idea that you, your children, will have opportunities that you, the immigrant, won't have. So you're, all this equity is going into your children and the next generation. And that's true, I think, from the experiences that I've had, absolutely. Um, it was an important lesson to learn at a young age, though, mowing lawns, was um, <laughs> I was very much treated like the help. Mm -hmm. uh, by more affluent community members. And growing up in Orange County, there's definitely a distinction of haves and have-nots. And certainly, I learned the lesson very early at eight, which is we're not all equal. You know, the, the letter of the law says we are, but we're not. That's an important lesson to learn. And later on, uh, you know, when my parents ended up moving in 2000 to Georgia, where they continue to run a pretty notable free-range organic chicken farm, um, you know, they were, you know, same thing. They were building a community. They we're starting a business. They're very entrepreneurial. I think many Vietnamese Americans kind of get tagged in that label, uh, sort of salt of the earth. And, um, you know, they sort of viewed owning the land as sort of a sense of them making it. But it unfortunately wasn't until last year. Uh, so this was last August when uh, my parents were being scapegoated, you know, for, um, you know, concerns that they brought the virus to Georgia. And I don't know if you might recall this, but there was a time early in the pandemic in March of 2020, where Italy, New York City, and Southern Georgia had the worst outbreaks in the country. And they were affected by that because some of their colleagues and workers went to this funeral, which became one of the largest super spreader events uh, in the state and actually in the country at that point. Uh, following that experience, they definitely felt some tepidness, I think some detriments, there was some scapegoating. And that sort of sparked my um, you know, realization, frankly, and we can talk about this deeper, about speaking up about um, you know, discrimination and xenophobia that Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders have long faced in this country. And that sort of you know, hearing how horribly they were treated by people that they broke bread with for 20 years to be told that like, they were the reason for the ire, um, that was really hard and inspired me to start writing, including an op-ed piece that focused on uh, the contributions of immigrants during COVID-19. Well, yeah, and so you've you've written a lot recently um, about the fact that, so you say that when you were growing up kind of in, in Orange County, you felt that you needed to or you wanted to, I'm not sure which, to, to kind of deny or downplay the importance of your ident identity to, to yourself. 
Um, and now that this kind of recent series of events have, have meant that you want to embrace that more and speak out and realize the existence of that more. I, so I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about that kind of sense of realization and how you think that kind of your heritage shaped your character and outlook as you were growing up in America. Sure. You know, I think being both from a Western culture and from an Eastern culture, you definitely feel the differences. And I'll give you an example. I think in the Western culture, it's so much about speaking up and sort of a degree of flair and flamboyance. And in the Eastern culture, it's all about the subtlety and the unspoken, right? So there's sort of this natural tension, I think, between how do you sort of say what you want to say? Uh, and then I think in Western cultures, you just say it. In Eastern cultures, especially sort of in America, way. Yeah. 100% like yeah. in America. And in America, yeah. it's like whoever's loudest is right. Yeah. And in Asian cultures, it's actually whoever's loudest is probably wrong. Like there's sort of an interesting dynamic there. Um, and so I'll say what I learned early was that you had to go along to get along. Right. And so for me, I definitely saw value in distancing myself from my culture, unfortunately. And every um, immigrant kid has this experience where they get homemade food taken to school. And, you know, some kid thinks your rice bowl is gross. And then you get seen as an outlier since it's not chicken tenders. Right. <laughs> it's not fried chicken. It's not hot dogs. It's not a burger. Um, so, you know, you know, I really dove in, honestly, in trying to be as Amer as American apple pie as possible. I was really passionate about top 40 popular music. I dove into American sports like baseball. Right. I went to all those camps because I wanted to fit in like every other kid. And so the second lesson, right, was um, you needed to be focused on being a part of the collective rather than be an individual, which I think is ironic because in Eastern philosophy, they would say, <laughs> yeah, that's actually true. But weirdly, I was rebelling by trying to be the same. So it was this really interesting irony that was, I think, at play. And, um, you know, an experience that really, I think, captured my first real moment of true discrimination was, you know, in fifth grade, uh, you know, I wanted to run for class president. And one of the boys in class said, hey, you know, uh, I don't think you're going to need any votes because, you know, um, you know, people think you eat dog. And that just sort of shocked me since we had a pet dog. And I I'd <laughs> never heard that before. It was very bizarre. Yeah. I, I'm like, I, I like apple pie. I don't like dogs. Yeah. I like dogs, but I want to eat a dog. And I remember coming back to, um, you know, the classroom after lunch, and I saw a picture of me eating a dog. And I was crushed, you know, at 10 years old. And the third lesson I learned was, uh, you know, there are some people out there that will tell you that your dreams can't come true. And that's something that when you're a young person, that really does shape your worldview very quickly. So I think those were sort of some very early on experiences that helped me sort of understand that you didn't want to stick out because actually for your success, you need to blend in very quickly. Yeah. And well, as, as we're going to talk about in a minute, I mean, you've, you've gone on to have amazing success in, in your professional career. As, as part of this um, kind of process of starting to speak out about, about your identity, um, so you suffered this racist attack at Reno Airport last year, I think. And and this was one of, of innumerable such events that have happened across the United States, you know, since the coronavirus pa pandemic began and, and beforehand, of course, as well. But there's really, really been this huge uptick in violent attacks and, and kind of, of statements against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. And I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about, about what happened to you and how it made you think about your place in America today. Yeah, um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you about the story, right? So when last March, I was traveling for a work trip, um, leaving from Reno to San Francisco, and a complete stranger went up to me and spit in my face and told me to go back where I came from. 
which I don't think she meant California because if she yeah. meant California, I'd say, yeah, those Nevadans don't like those California. <laughs> but actually she meant, you know, me as in an Asian, probably as a Chinese person, which obviously being Vietnamese American is, is an interesting thing to be called historically. Yeah. Um, and it was a feeling of, of being so um, seen as subhuman that you're sort of seen as radioactive. And what wasn't, so crushing wasn't actually being spit on. Unfortunately, it's happened to me before. What was really hard to swallow was watching about a dozen people see what happened and then turn their head. They pretended like it never happened and actually that I didn't matter. And that sort of complicity, that sort of quiet acceptance that that was okay practice for a human being to spit on another human being uh, unprovoked. I think that was probably one of the most damning things I saw about American culture in 2020, right? And obviously, when you think about sort of racial and social justice issues that later on percolated with George Floyd's murder that summer, I think it was very uh, illustrative of things to come. And I think you highlighted so thoughtfully, Andy, that, um, you know, these anti-Asian sentiment has been here since the 19th century. There are Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, Jap Japanese and Chinese particularly, have been here longer than most European Americans in the United States, right? And so this sort of sense that like you aren't from here is something that for whatever reason is deeply ingrained. Um, you know, I, I always like to highlight that these things are not new. Uh, it's just, it's formed in a new way. And I think what was really difficult was my experience was actually pretty standard because you would start seeing videos, you know, viral videos of elder Asian women being beat up on buses or stabbed or being punched outside. And again, the violence was horrible and abject and terrible, but it was these bystanders that would just watch it and watch this happen. That to me, um, that was very alarming. And seeing those experiences, plus my parents' experience sort of forced me to sort of recognize that I needed to say something, which, as you can imagine, when you're in politics and you're a staffer, you are doing everything to avoid the press, to yeah. avoid having opinions in public, to avoid being on great podcasts, to try <laughs> to try to not um, speak up because you'll get hit for it. And frankly, it's all, again, about blending in. But the realization here, or at least for me, was um, the more I embraced my culture and identity, the more whole I felt the more sort of sense of comfort I had that I had never felt before. And it inspired um, a degree of energy and passion that I hadn't felt in quite a long time, frankly. And, you know, since that Albany piece, I've written, you know, 35 pieces, right, that have been picked up in multiple national, regional, global publications. And as you know, from your writing, Andy, it's, um, that's a time intensive process. It's not easy. But I think that there are communities um, that really want to, better understand this issue or are just learning this issue because there's this preconceived notion, this model minority lie, right? This concept that Asians are sort of the top minority and everybody should be like them, that they can succeed, therefore everyone can succeed. It's just total garbage. Um, you know, we, you know, in the community are always trying to fight this, um, you know, aspect of trying to get better data, better information because what, because Asian Americans are only six, 7% of the country, they're sort of lumped together. And as you know, from your research, the diversity on the entire Asian continent is, is pretty broad, <laughs> but their experiences are completely different. Chinese, mm -hmm. Japanese Americans that have been here since the 19th century have had a very different experience than Vietnamese and Hmong Americans who came here in the 70s and 80s, right? Yeah. I think we can very much tell that. Unfortunately, we have to do a better job telling the stories that, at least to other communities of color, 
that um, Asian American Pacific Islanders are a minority, that they're not just yeah. white adjacent, that you have Burmese Americans, Hmong Americans, Lao Americans who have uh, life expectancies, economic opportunities, educational advancement, experiences in the criminal justice system that are on par, if not worse, than other groups that you sort of picture when you think of uh, disenfranchised groups, right? These are things that we have to do to educate among not just white people, but also communities of color. And then I will say also to communicate and educate other Asians, because other Asians are perpetuating the stereotype too that you know, if they just kind of do their thing, they get their place in society. But as you saw from my experience in Reno, even though I was Asian in a suit going to a business meeting, um, my standing was conditional and arbitrary based on another person's sort of simple realization that I was less than them, regardless of whatever hard work I put into. And I think that's just something that's notable to, to highlight. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. Well, yeah, and I, I think it's a it's such an amazing thing that you've done since that incident to speak out so many ways and in, in so many forums and you know, you're you're basically saying that you refuse to be a bystander to this issue that is affecting the the API community in in America. It, it seems to me that there's been over the last eighteen months this real kind of racial awakening among many white Americans about the the, the plight of African Americans specifically. But that when it comes to Asian Americans, there's still this idea that that you mentioned yourself of of the model minority. So this basically says that. Asian Americans are, are, are super successful, even more successful than the average of the population. So that that means basically that firstly, other minority groups should should look up to them as and, and kind of it can become a way of saying, well, you know, people say to African Americans, if you wanted to succeed, you could just choose to be like the Asian Americans and then you would succeed. So it kind of erases and minimizes the experiences of, of other minority groups, but it really erases and minimizes the experience of Asian Americans themselves as as well right because whatever kind of a few collective statistics might tell us that doesn't tell us anything about what you experienced that day at that reno airport and as you as you know in your research um getting more granularity in the data matters i will say on your point about um, model minority being used and thrown around um, one of the biggest reasons why that's so dangerous is it's used as a wedge so it's used as a wedge to sort of put pressure on other communities of color to turn on each other at a time where allyship and co-conspiracy ship, you know, that is so important yeah. to come together to fight the big boss, the big bad guy, which is white supremacy. And as you know from your research, divide and conquer is a very effective strategy, not just in foreign policy, but in domestic issues. <laughs> yeah. And and I will tell you, like, so one of the things I've been doing, you know, beyond writing for public consumption has been the speaking has speaking to organizations, having conversations with government agencies, having deep discussions with Fortune 500 companies, and also having discussions with high school students about, you know, what can we do to sort of educate, uh, you know, provide real, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion for Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders specifically. I think very few people know that Asian Americans are among the least likely to make it into the, you know, the executive suites 
uh, in Fortune companies. They are among the least likely to make partner at law firms, even though they make up a large uh, base of associates. I think there's this mindset that the Asian American worker is a great worker bee, but sort of similar to what my career had, um, you know, there's this understanding that you work hard, but you're not a leader. And I think that is something that becomes this bamboo ceiling that you can only go so far regardless. And I think it's fascinating in corporate America, particularly uh, that so if, if it's a case that Asian Americans are so successful, why are they not breaking those ranks? Right. Mm, if there are yeah. numbers, right? then that's obviously it's again, it's, it's, it's you're, you're, you're important and you're valuable until you're not. And I think there is certainly um, a degree of that there. And also, frankly, um, you know, uh, trying to push companies to, better work on their harassment and racism policies. I mean, um, you know, Asian women in particular have been disproportionately affected during um, during the pandemic. 6,600 self-reported cases of discrimination or acts of violence. Uh, Two-thirds of those are women. And let's be real, that's underreported. The, the true number is much higher, largely because of cultural uh, issues, linguistic barriers, and just frankly, cultural shame. Um, but a lot of those incidents are happening in the workplace. And I think that's why I'm trying to really focus, you know, with the companies, because think about how much time you spend in your workplace, right? If you're not feeling comfortable there, what happens? You leave the workplace. If you leave the workplace, then what? How are you improving your standing? And frankly, then there's that erasure happens again, that you highlight it. And suddenly you say, oh, we don't have enough Asians in leadership anyways, because they don't want to be in leadership. So there's sort of this perpetuating thing that you need to help create conditions and education so that, uh, you know, these groups can be successful and effective. And, and so you yourself have worked for such a huge array of organizations across private industry and nonprofits and state and federal government. And um, a, a few highlights from your career that really stand out to me is that, um, so you worked for the State Department. You deployed to Afghanistan while working for um, International Relief and Development Inc., which was, I guess, on a U.S. government contract. And, and the fact that you also held these, these high-level posts in California state government under Jerry Brown. Um, we were discussing just before we came on air that my, my wife's from Ventura and she was super excited that I was interviewing someone who'd worked for Jerry Brown, you know, because he's kind of this legendary governor of California who was the governor like back in the, the late 70s and early 80s and, and then again recently. Your professional career, you know, spans so many different interesting organizations. But yeah, I, I'm interested in this idea of, of the bamboo ceiling. So, you know, I think this is something that... that isn't really kind of out there in in the cultural conversation in in the mainstream that much that so you perceived that there was this real difficulty with with kind of getting respect from your superiors i think or, or i should say bosses rather than superiors and you know and and, and kind of that there were there were limitations that were placed on your advancement so could you talk about that a little bit sure you know it was you know when i look at my public service life both in the halls of Congress, but also working for Governor Brown. Uh, I consider those some of the proudest pieces of work I got to be a part of. Like, you know, California, right? 40 million people, fifth largest economy in the world, and sort of a global leader on policy matters, right? Be because of the um, challenges in getting real bills and legislation passed through Congress, the states end up playing a key role in, in key policies, especially in the consumer protection and digital infrastructure space. And, you know, I was really proud in California to work on issues that span, you know, this course of privacy issues, ranging on agriculture, military and veterans affairs issues, and all the disaster response, right? Fires, floods, uh, cybersecurity attacks, which are in the news right now. And unfortunately, um, you know, acts of violence with, you know, rogue gunmen and other horrible uh, acts of violence. 
So I was really proud of serving, you know, the state that you let me in, let my family in, right? But um, I think there's this mystique. And the reason why I try to talk about politics and sort of the business of politics for people is there's this mystique that when you're in these certain circles, like everyone has a good. Um, and I think actually there's some truth to that, right? Like I'm not going to say I didn't have the privilege of, you know, being an important decision maker uh, on issues that affected 40 million people, if not more. But um, it's about who's in the room. Who's in the room that matters? How are you treated in the room for decisions? And I think that's like any organization all of us are part of, right? There's sort of the org chart and then there's the reality. And in politics and particularly the state of California, um, I was treated like a second tier player, uh, even though I had, um, you know, the bona fides and the background for some of the work I was able to do, there was sort of a second classness to me. And that was sort of highlighted by the stakeholders I would work with that perceived me as a lightweight, not because of my skill sets, but because of my background, I think, you know, my cultural background, if I were to be specific. And, um, you know, the example I give is a lot of the, you know, in politics, right, you have to cut a deal. And usually the deal is on the assumption that you give something, they get something, they give something, you get something. And then the deal is respected. But what I found was when I cut these deals, uh, a number of the stakeholders I work with, they would sort of go around me and then try to cut another deal. And that's just not okay in the sort of the business politique of the day. And when I would talk to my other colleagues about this experience, they would just looked at me like it was like completely foreign because it didn't happen to them because they came from a certain culture or background. And there was sort of this buddy system that they had had established over the years. And, you know, for me related to buddy system, it was like, well, maybe I need to get more backup. Maybe I need to get more help to better understand what am I doing wrong? So originally I had other people attend meetings with me sort of as like a co-chair or like someone else to help spear the deal largely because I wanted to see what I can learn from my peers. But actually what ended up happening was um, we would be treated completely differently because I had white peers with me or other peers with me and the deals were more respected. I also thought it was interesting that in the meetings, there was an assumption that whoever I brought in the meeting with me was the person that was the leader. So there's always this assumption that I was the second or third fiddle. So I think there was an interesting perception and surprise when I was sort of in the chair to make a decision or recommendation to the governor directly. Um, I think that also highlighted this broader issue of, you know, leadership presence. It's a, a phrase that was used, you know, to describe what I needed to find. Um, when I asked colleagues and peers, like, you know, what does that mean to you? Well, they're like, well, you know, you're, you need to be more loud or you need to be more <laughs> quiet or you need to be more analytical or you need to go with your gut instincts or you need to be more passive or you need to be more, you know, assertive. It was sort of, you have to be everything and nothing, which means actually it isn't about your characteristics or skills. It's just who you are. Um, I say this because I was chasing as much as I could, as much of the leadership literature I could. You know, I accepted and attended multiple leadership fellowships, you know, 12 of them in a five-year span. So it wasn't something I didn't uh, want to try to find, but it became pretty clear that um, I was playing in a different, um, a different league, even if we were in, the, you know, even if we were playing by, the, by assumed rules that actually didn't apply to them. Yeah. And I guess I, I, I find it really interesting that this experience was in California as well, you mm -hmm. know, which which is such a racially diverse state. And, you know, this isn't perhaps the idea that most people would have, would have of, of how California state government operates. Yeah. And I would say it's so fascinating, right? You have, 
you know, Asian American Pacific Islanders make up 15% of California. Right. Obviously, some of the longest lineages of Asian culture and history in San Francisco and Los Angeles, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. I mean, you yeah. can't, you know, you throw a stone, you find a Japantown or Koreatown or Little Saigon. Yeah. Um, but the truth is, these groups are sort of discounted. They're not seen as serious in the stakeholder world, um, despite the fact that there are, you know, multiple members in the state legislature, multiple members of Congress, three statewide elected office holders, including the attorney general of the state. So, you know, there is sort of this perception that, again, um, there's representation. But again, who is actually seen as the decision maker? That seems to be a bit of a distinction. So I, it is ironic. And it makes you wonder if this is happening in California, it's probably happening everywhere in the country. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And so uh, another uh, part of your career that I'd like to talk about, and I, I have kind of a, a personal interest in this because um, mm-hmm. I wrote a book about American nation building in, in the Vietnam War. That was like my doctoral dissertation a long time ago. And then I, I finally turned it into a book. And in this book, I, I kind of studied. So, so when America was fighting the Vietnam War, it's also trying to transform the institutions of the Vietnamese state, the South Vietnamese state in a way that would make it more democratic and more legitimate in the eyes of its people and, and able to provide economic development. And I, I found it really interesting that, so you, you came to the US, you know, as a result of the American intervention in Vietnam, it probably wouldn't have happened otherwise. And then you ended up yourself doing this same kind of nation building and development work um, in the provinces of, of Afghanistan. And I, I mean, firstly that, you know, I, I would just love to hear kind of, we could probably talk for three hours about, about all the experiences you had during that but i guess to try and keep on on topic for this podcast i i I wondered if you know it's often the case that people compare the afghanistan war to the vietnam war right and they don't generally do that in a way that's supposed to be kind of positive about about Mm -hmm. the 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 whole venture i just wondered if you kind of reflected sometimes on those parallels and whether your family's background you know gave you a a way of looking at, at what you were trying to do in in what the united states was trying to do in afghanistan that maybe was a little bit different to your colleagues because you had this extra perspective on it yeah, you know, when, you know, when I started about my career, um, my career was focused on international relations. And like you had a, uh, a junkie passion for U.S. foreign policy. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's partly being a glutton for pain, yeah. uh, especially if your research is on nation building led by the Americans, which yeah. uh, I think has a, a pretty uh, uneven record. Yeah. Um, you know, and, you know, I was very blessed, right? I got to work and travel overseas to 85 countries and most notably, you know, in countries, whether it was in West Africa or in the former Soviet Union, but Afghanistan was the one that was on my mind. And it was partly from originally an interest in foreign policy of asking myself, should we be here? And when I kept looking through, you know, the research of the previous Taliban regime, right? So before 9-11, the things that, um, you know, as a basically as a theocracy uh, that was targeting women and girls and, you know, putting them in a different, um, a stone age. Um, that sort of compelled me to sort of assess and say, you know what, if I really want to be a serious policy practitioner on this very complex issue, I should see for myself. And so I did go there on sort of two stints, the first with international relief and development as a USAID implementing partner, um, you know, trying to do infrastructure road building. So, you know, hard infrastructure, economic development work, and frankly, stakeholder engagement with communities that were skeptical of international communities, totally understandable given its history. And the second was actually focused on human rights work focused on women and girls, um, you know, really focused on legal education, trainings, education of, um, you know, their rights you know, that are enshrined in the Afghan constitution, which in practice probably aren't enshrined in the same way in real life. 
Um, but, you know, my parents will tell you, Andy, when I told them I was going to start working overseas, you know what their first response to me was, was, listen, we came across the ocean on a boat. So you didn't have to deal with poverty and oppression. Why are you trying to go to these places? And again, just understand, my parents have a third grade education and they, um, you know, they're focused on stability and order, right? That things that they're focused on the home, they want, right? So I understand why they were concerned that their son was going into conflict zones or places that are going through significant political change. But, you know, I felt, and this is, I think, as an American, I felt a obligation to serve my country in the best ways I could. And, you know, frankly, you know, the U.S. military and international forces needed civilian voices to help them in the field. And uh, I certainly was well aware, given my Vietnamese heritage, that there was quite some challenges when you're leading an occupation. Uh, it's not exactly the most well-received thing. It's not like people showed up with, you know, party streamers and balloons. But um, unfortunately, I think there are comparisons that are notable. I think the biggest one being two things. One is graveyard of empires, right? Uh, people who get there, uh, they usually don't leave on the greatest of terms. I think Vietnam and Afghanistan are similar. The second one, I think, is on, um, you know, the, the question of, of the aftermath, right? I mean, you know, these sort of wars that go on and on, uh, whether it's Vietnam or in Afghanistan, the issue is it wasn't one war. The issue is it was 21-year wars. That's how I viewed it. The commanders had a unique strategy. The handoff would be kind of so-so. And then there'd be completely new rules of engagement almost every year. So in two and a half years I was there, I had three different things I had to juggle with little to no institutional memory with me, right? And I think that definitely, how do you, how do you ensure success in that? I, I don't think that's possible. And I think in, in Vietnam, probably some similar aspects of that. But again, I get back to, you know, from the policy perspective, um, women and girls clearly uh, benefited from international intervention. And, you know, when the Americans leave at the end of August and on, before September 11th, they unfortunately, I think, will be the first ones that will be most affected or the translators that served our countries, um, you know, who are now trying to seek asylum here in the United States. But really, it's about the sort of issue of supporting the most marginalized. And the United States needs to stand for human rights and freedoms. And certainly trying to empower these groups will be important. The question is, what will Congress and the Biden administration do heading into this next chapter? Because if you look at the Vietnamese experience, the issue that what the issue wasn't leaving, the issue was leaving and not caring again. That was the biggest issue, right? Uh, you know, and I, and, you know, Congress is dealing with issues as it comes up in priority. But uh, I'm not entirely sure what Afghanistan will be in terms of, uh, of a financial commitment to the United States. And I unfortunately do think, given the security and operational issues that we're seeing in Kabul and beyond. You know, we unfortunately might see a little bit of those gains of the past 20 years go away. Such a tragic situation that seems to be unfolding there now and, and looks likely to, to unfold in the future. And I mean, what I, I guess one of the reasons why the Biden administration is moving its attention away from Afghanistan is because it says, you know, that it, it really wants to focus on, on China. Right. Mm -hmm. And. This, I think, is a, this is an issue that, that has a lot of implications for the AAPI community in America as well, right? So there's, there is now in, in Washington, D.C., this kind of solid bipartisan consensus, you know, behind a more confrontational stance towards China. And that intersected really strongly over the last year and a half with, with the COVID-19 pandemic, you know. So in the, you had all these Republican politicians talking about Kung Flu and, and leaning really heavily into, into demonizing China. 
And I think that, you know, this is, uh, it, it's a bit like we were saying earlier about this violence that we've been seeing. This is something that's been around for a long time, but, you know, we're in a particularly acute phase of it right now. And I, I wondered if, you know, one, one issue that I don't hear talked about enough is that what kind of position does this put the AAPI community in America in when the US seems to be kind of heading towards what some people call a new cold war or you know a superpower struggle with an asian country and and as you alluded to earlier you know there's this kind of horrible thing where everyone assumes that if you look east asian you're chinese right you like you said of the the person at, at reno airport so I, I just wondered a little bit if you could reflect on kind of the the domestic implications of this competition with china you know for asian americans yeah i mean first off it seems really foolish to think that foreign policy rhetoric doesn't have an effect in domestic policymaking, right? So let's be real. And the competition between the United States and China is on multiple fronts, right? It's on a foreign, it's for, you know, for foreign and global influence. It's on domestic, everyday societal issues and challenges. And it's also on the economic order that we're sort of seeing in the world today. Um, unfortunately, we do have precedences of where, um, anti-Asian rhetoric does lead to domestic flare-ups. And, um, you know, I will say first and foremost, like, let's just be very clear. Um, the Chinese people and the Chinese Communist Party are two different things. Unfortunately, those things are sometimes connected uh, partly by, by lazy bipartisan lumping and also partly because of reporting that maybe isn't trying to be as thoughtful. So I would just say that, yes, political rhetoric is an issue, but also, let's be real, some of the reporting does sort of imply some same sameness, which I think is really both unfair and also lacks the understanding of the true political context in China. So I'll just say that first. But if you look in the if you look in the 20th century, right, um, you know, I'll give you examples, right? I mean, Japanese internment, right, during World War II, it's not exactly like they were interning German and Italian Americans, right, even though they were actively at war as well. So the Japanese uh, Americans have already faced those issues because of a rising uh, Asian Pacific military issue, right? That they were then affected from a domestic policy mark, mark. And again, remember, these were groups that were American citizens, right? So these weren't necessarily like true foreign born. These were all from here. The second piece, which I think ties into the Asian hate you're sort of wanting to talk about on this sort of comparison, which is actually in the year I was born. So in 1982, um, you know, at that time, there was obviously huge economic competition between Japan and the United States in the automobile industry. And in Detroit, right, a really notable flashpoint on, on Asian American rights, uh, Vincent Chen, a Chinese American, was beaten up by two white auto workers on the grounds that he was taking their jobs. So he being Chinese was being scapegoated for being Japanese and murdered. And guess what? Nothing happened to those two guys. You know, a minor fine. No jail time. And, but that's an example of where rhetoric and competition creates conditions of violations of dignity and human rights, right? And if you're talking about you know, um, you know, global issues as a whole and human rights issues, think about if you're the Chinese Communist Party, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great way to deflect your human rights abuses with Uyghurs in Western China, when you can say, oh, you, your Asian Americans are discriminated and beaten up in the street with people watching. So it undermines the American moral authority to bridge, develop, foster, and grow global coalitions at a time where there is that fight in sort of a 
a unipolar world moving to a bipolar world, right? I think that's going to be a big issue. And I, and I think policymakers are starting to get to, um, you know, a discussion on how we can better, um, you know, talk about um, issues with the Chinese Communist Party. But I think uh, to say that these things are not connected are, are foolish and ridiculous. And I do think, unfortunately, because of the competitive nature of the relationship, it's here to stay. So the United States government and state governments and other stakeholders need to do more to, you know, to get the right data, information, government services to Asian American communities that are most disenfranchised and most affected. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about American politics, foreign policy and culture for an international audience. Like it? Then tell a friend and help us grow. It's been so interesting to me how the Biden administration has framed even so much of its domestic program in terms mm-hmm. of competition with China, right? You know, mm-hmm. so they say we need um, we need the economic stimulus package, we need the infrastructure package because of competition with China. And I think that this is sort of something that they believe, but it also says me says to me perhaps that they think this is a useful framing politically that they think to kind of whip up this idea of competition between the US and China, which of course is a reality of international relations, but but we choose to talk about it in, in particular ways and those ways have consequences. The Biden administration is is leaning into, into this China competition rhetoric really strongly and I, I think that does really reinforce, you know, what you say that it's here to stay in both parties. Yeah, and and I think to your point, I think you highlighted this right. The the China competition rhetoric is domestically focused to American audiences, so everyday American middle class families, right? That's the target. So don't you think it's interesting when you talk about uh, domestic politics and sort of the upcoming twenty two midterm elections? How does that rhetoric affect Asian American outreach? How does that affect the game uh, of trying to control Congress next year when you have a 50-50 split in the Senate and you've got the narrowest majority the Democrats control in over a century uh, in the House? And with redistricting, you know, history of the poverty and power losing seats, um, what is going to be the effect of Asian Americans who, again, 7% of the country, um, but a huge voting bloc that swung elections in Georgia and Arizona. But at the same time, there's all this Asian conversation but there's no Asian cabinet members. There's no, uh, you know, Asian American issues are sort of seen as secondary. Now that's changing, you know, after the uh, horrible murders in Atlanta in March, right? The COVID-19 hate crime bill, that was a bipartisan support, but you know, it remains to be seen again, how much uh, focused targeted um, discussions will Asian Americans be? Because again, are they in the room of decisions or not? And I think that's sort of a key question. They've certainly tried to produce more, uh, representation in that space, but um, it's probably not a, enough representation in light of how disproportionate the China conversation is going forward. Just to kind of to wrap up and bring this home, and thanks for being so generous with your time. You know, I, I think you've highlighted something really interesting about the Democratic Party's. Um, kind of position vis-a-vis the Asian American population. So, I mean, there's so much conversation right now, right, about in 2020 that basically Democrats didn't take Hispanics seriously. 
you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and they they kind of treated, didn't really focus on outreach on the ground to Hispanics and on treating the community as kind of heterogeneous and speaking to Hispanics in different places, in different ways, you know, depending on what um, what what was useful to those communities. And, and it really does seem to me that they, this kind of stems from taking Hispanics for granted. So I remember at the DNC um, in 2020, mm-hmm. there was no prominent Hispanic speaker at, at the DNC whatsoever. And a kind of a, a theme that I think keeps coming up again and again in our conversation, both in talking about California and then now about kind of the Democratic Party at the, at the federal national level, that there seems to me there's this kind of taking for granted of Asian Americans as well. So, you know, this is a, a block that, um, you know, I, th- I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know, back in the early 90s, Asian Americans were not as associated with the Democratic Party as they are now whatsoever. And, and that's really changed over the last few decades. Decades, um, but but it seems that now Democrats are just taking that for granted and 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 they're not doing outreach. Yeah, so I would say two things in response. First off, um, Asian Americans are still new to politics, so yes, they have as a whole as a grouping they have moved more democratic. But let's be real here, Andy. They um, they don't owe anyone anything. You know, it's not like you know like black women are the democratic cornerstone of the party. They cannot win without black women. And I totally get that, right? They are the most passionate, most loyal, most committed supporters. It's largely because the Democratic Party has invested in them. Asians have not had that same uh, focus and relevance uh, to the party bosses and leadership, right? So yes, in, in a year where a previous president was actively uh, targeting groups and then groups would be beaten up, yeah, it's not a surprise that they were voting Democratic for somebody uh, that wasn't actively calling for the destruction of groups of people, right? So that can't be a shocker. However, I think what you highlight is true. I mean, again, Asian Americans during this time have disproportionately been affected by COVID-19, not just because of acts of violence, but also during COVID-19, the actual uh, deaths from the virus, right? I mean, Filipino nurses have had some of the highest rates of death uh, in the country, because they've been acting as first-line, front-line civilians. Then you're thinking about all these other Asian Americans who've been involved in research and development, who've been on the front lines of getting this vaccine going. It's not talked about. But like again, these groups do their work quietly because they're sort of conditioned to not rock the boat. And unfortunately, as you know, in politics, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. And I do think that um, heading into this next election, because of the narrowing of districts, how many competitive districts are there really? And the growing changes in demographics with Asian Americans, right? Um, you know, the numbers of Asian Americans in Nevada, in uh, uh, Arizona, Texas, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, that's the ball game for presidential elections. It's also the ball game for the new uh, districts that are gonna be drawn in the House. And let me just tell you this. So if you don't get Asians, you're not gonna get the majority in the House. If you don't get the majority in the House, you're not gonna have a legislative agenda, and we're just gonna be having this lame duck heading to a new presidential election. So it is absolutely vital for both parties. And just to be clear, um, both parties need to invest in outreach, in language outreach. You know, in the 2020 cycle, more than half of Asian Americans didn't get contacted by either party. So think about that. You saw how close that election was. And uh, a percent here, a percent there flips everything, not just in the presidentials, but also in those Senate seats in Georgia. So I think that, um, you know, as I've sort of mentioned to the DNC and RNC, uh, if there's if they want to build for the future, they need to invest now and today. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much for these observations, Jeff. It's been great having you on the show. And yeah, so thanks very much. Thanks for having me, Andy. It was such a pleasure. 
That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Giants Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time.